I am Michael Brent at Observe the Word, and we are interpreting the book of Acts. Our text is Acts 1, 1 through 11. Welcome to Lesson 1 of Interpreting the Book of Acts. If you enjoy history, I imagine you already enjoy the book of Acts, the inspired biblical account of the early spread of Christianity. If you don't typically enjoy history, Acts has a lot for you to consider. I'm not even sure it's correct to call Acts a history. Certainly not the kind of typical history we're used to with lots of names and dates, battles and political parties. Acts is not that. Acts is historical and Acts is written as a narrative. But as with all biblical narrative, the goal of the author goes well beyond a record of events. The book of Acts is theological history. Acts gives us an authoritative, inspired interpretation of a critical moment in human history. The birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ divides human existence into two major eras. There is the before Christ era and the after Christ era. Together with the Gospels, the book of Acts serves as a bridge from before Christ to after Christ. Acts is a book of transitions. We are transitioning from the leadership of Jesus to the leadership of the apostles, from the old covenant to the new covenant, from a primarily Jewish people of God to a multi-ethnic people of God. This historical context of transition provides a backdrop for Luke to help believers define the gospel of Jesus Christ as we see that gospel worked out through transition. In the fifth chapter of his gospel, Luke describes a confrontation between Jesus and a group of Pharisees. Put off by Jesus' reception of tax collectors and other simple people, the Pharisees question the behavior of Jesus' disciples. Jesus responds, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled out and the skins will be ruined. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, wishes for new, for he says the old is good enough. The Pharisees were committed to the old covenant and to their own understanding of old covenant institutions and rituals. They had a structure, a, a skin, a container in which the wine of relationship with God or the wine of their spirituality um, could go. The old wine is good. They have no desire for new wine or a new wineskin. You know, they're open to the new covenant prophesied by Jeremiah as long as it, it looks and it tastes and it feels just like what they already have. Jesus says that's not going to work. The new covenant is something new. It's not going to taste and smell the same as the old. And if you try to shove it into the same form, it's going to burst that form. This is not simply an upgrade of all the same rituals and institutions you are used to. Now, we know that Jesus also affirms and values the old covenant. He came to fulfill all of the law. Not a bit of the law is being rejected. But the, the old covenant law has fulfilled its purpose, and now we're moving into something new. And there's going to be both continuity and discontinuity in that move. Now, I, I reject replacement theology, 
the new covenant is not simply a replacement of the old covenant where we don't need it anymore, where it has no value to Christians, or where we, we doubt that it was a good thing. Christians do not, or at least ought not, dismiss the old covenant simply because the new has come. The new flows from and fulfills the old. We need to resist a, a rejection or any kind of devaluation of the old while also embracing the radical change of the new. But we don't want change just for change's sake. We want the new wineskin that Jesus offers. And this new wineskin is, is not going to be intuitive to those who grew up under the old. Now, Jewish believers are going to face significant challenges letting go of, of what they ought to let go of. And new Gentile believers are going to face another significant challenge of being tempted to bring pagan values with them into the new covenant. So the book of Acts helps us understand and embrace the new wineskin that is the new covenant, what really is the gospel. Right away, the first 11 verses of Acts emphasize for us the transitory nature of this period. Jesus has risen from the dead, but he has not yet returned to heaven. Jesus has given leadership to a small movement of Jewish believers dedicated to proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. Now he commissions his apostles to take over leadership, and he ascends into heaven. The transition has begun. What now? That's the big question hanging over the first chapters of Acts. Jesus began something. He has left. What happens now to this little group of mainly Galilean followers? Well, let's start with just the first verse of Acts and address some background information about the book. Acts 1-1 begins with these words. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach. Consistent with other ancient writings, the author doesn't identify himself. He's not going to identify himself anywhere else in the book. Ancient Greek letters, epistles, like those of Paul and Peter, were an exception, being written with a to and a from in the greeting. So we tend to know who wrote those. Acts is not a letter, so no author is specified. Early Christian tradition attributes Acts to Luke, the traveling companion of Paul, who, also according to tradition, wrote the Gospel of Luke. We do find a couple of clues in Acts. The narration is mostly in third person, telling us that Peter did this or Paul did that. But then in chapter 16, verse 10, the narration changes to first person. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia. Did you hear the we? We sought to go into Macedonia. The author is not just telling us about the travels of Paul from a third-person point of view. The author is with Paul. You know, we went into Macedonia. And that we shows up again in chapters 20 and 21, 27, and 28. So the author is there. In his own letters, Paul mentions Luke three times, once each in Colossians, 2 Timothy, and Philemon. In Colossians 4.14, Paul calls Luke the beloved physician. To the best of our knowledge, Luke was a Gentile traveling companion of Paul, trained as a physician. In this series, I'm going to trust the accuracy of church tradition that this Luke, this traveling companion of Paul, 
wrote both the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. So here's our first verse again. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach. This is not Luke's first work. He references another work, calling it the first account. And it was about all that Jesus began to do and teach, which sounds an awful lot like a gospel. Acts 1-1 references a person named Theophilus. The only other reference to the name Theophilus in the Bible appears at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke. Taking the two references of Theophilus together, we have what appears to be a two-book series covering the life of Jesus and the spread of the early church. The first verses of Luke's Gospel tell us a little more about Theophilus and a little more about Luke. This is Luke 1, 1 through 4. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. The name Theophilus combines the two words theos and phileo, meaning loved by God or lover of God. It's a great name for a Christian. It reminds me of John's term for himself in his gospel, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And because the name has such a great meaning for a Christian, it's been suggested that Theophilus is a literary character made up by the author. You know, we're all to be Theophilus, loved by God and loving God, earnestly seeking to know the truth about Jesus Christ, which is here recorded in Luke and in the book of Acts. And by all means, be a Theophilus. Be a lover of God. Seek to know the exact truth of what you have been taught. But just because the name works so well as an exhortation to readers of Luke and Acts, that's no reason to think Theophilus is not also a historical figure. The name was a common one, and Luke's address treats him as a real person. Luke says he's writing so that Theophilus might know the exact truth about the things he had been taught. So possibly Theophilus is already a believer. He is at least an interested person who's already been taught about Jesus. Luke honors him with the words, most excellent Theophilus, making us wonder whether Theophilus was Luke's patron. You know, could he have been a wealthy Christian who supported Luke in his ministry of the word? And we don't know, but that's certainly a possibility. Could he have been an influential Roman who could urge for Paul's release? That's where Paul is. He's under house arrest at the end of uh, the book of Acts. So could, could Luke be writing to this, this Roman who cares about Christ, who cares about Paul, giving him all this information so that he could uh, argue for the release of Paul? You know, it's a possibility. We really don't know that much about Theophilus at all. So we're just, in a sense, we're just guessing. But even without knowing much about Theophilus, Luke's reference to him helps contextualize his writings, where it gives us a sense of the real. Luke and Acts were written in such a way that a real person, somebody like Theophilus, living in the first century, 
a real Gentile, a non-Jew, might understand accurately the events and teaching of Jesus Christ and the spread of the early Christian movement. And you can imagine him. You can imagine this man wanting to know more. And you can even put yourself in his place. I want to know more about the life of Christ. I want to know more about the spread of the gospel and what is the gospel and how it went out from Israel into into different nations. Luke's introduction to his gospel also gives us a little insight into his process. You know, what does Luke believe he was doing? He acknowledges that others had recorded events and teaching of Jesus and things received from from eyewitnesses. You know, Luke is not himself an eyewitness. He's not even Jewish. But Luke believed that he had something to contribute to the record. In writing his gospel, he may have been motivated to provide a version of the life of Christ more accessible to Gentiles like himself. You know, he certainly seems to have been motivated to write about the birth of Christ. You know, if we don't get the gospel of Luke, we don't have most of what we know about the birth story. Luke also seems motivated as a travel companion of Paul to give us Paul's story covered in the second half of the book of Acts, you know, leading some to suggest that Acts is primarily intended as a defense of Paul. And I think there is something to that, though I think it more accurate to say that Luke was motivated by a defense of the gospel of which Paul was an apostle. And in defending Paul, he's really defending the gospel preached by Paul. So Acts is about the gospel. What is this gospel? Let's define it. Let's defend it. Luke indicates that he has consulted eyewitnesses. He has investigated. He has written things down in a consecutive order. That's his language. These are the values of a historian who desires to communicate events truthfully. If he was a physician, he was a man of, of science who understood order, who understood the importance of being exact and getting facts right. We might wonder when did Luke do this? When did he carry out his investigation into the life of Christ? And since he indicates in the book of Acts that he was present in Israel at the, at the end of the book, it's plausible to think Luke took time during Paul's two-year imprisonment in Caesarea to do on-location research. You know, perhaps he visited Nazareth and the Sea of Galilee and Bethlehem and Jerusalem and he met with people, and he, he gathered information. Luke may have conducted research during Paul's imprisonment, but when did he actually produce the finished manuscripts of Luke and Acts? When were they available? Well, the book of Acts takes us up to Paul's house arrest in Rome, and tradition suggests that Paul was released and able to continue his ministry but was imprisoned a second time and executed during the persecution of Rome. An early dating of Acts assumes that Luke has ended his story um, when he has brought events up to present time, that he, he actually is ending his story while Paul is under his first imprisonment in Rome. If that's the case, Acts may have been written just after 60 AD, certainly before the mid-60s when Paul is, is executed. Proponents for a later dating of Acts point out that Luke's gospel emphasizes uh, prophecies about the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. And it's inferred from that that Luke did this 
after the temple's destruction in 70 AD to remind readers that Jesus had made these prophecies. So when, when the temple falls, people need to remember that Jesus knew this was going to happen, and he prophesied it. And so Luke gives that emphasis in his gospel. And since Acts was written after Luke, you know, this view argues that the date, date of both books comes in the early 70s, after the destruction of the temple. It seems unlikely that Acts would have been written much later, since Luke makes no reference to Paul's letters, suggesting that those letters were being collected and circulated more after the writing of Acts, though not much later, since Second Peter already refers to Paul's writings as Scripture in Second Peter 3.16. Taking either point of view, um, whether we're looking at the early 60s or early 70s, uh, the book of Acts was written very close to the events recorded by a person, Luke, who was, who was actually an eyewitness to some of those events. He was traveling with Paul. So, to sum up, the book of Acts serves, along with the Gospel of Luke, as a two-part work that bridges us from the era before Jesus to the era after Jesus. Acts is written very close to the time of the events by a traveling companion of Paul who wants us to understand the truth about the early spread of Christianity and uses the true story of those events to define and defend the gospel of Jesus Christ so that we might rightly understand the new wineskin of the new covenant and not try to understand our walk with Jesus according to the old wineskin of the old covenant or the old wineskin of pagan belief. We are asking with the apostles, what now? What does life with God look like now that Jesus has ascended into heaven? Let's continue on in this lesson with our first passage, the introduction to the book found in Acts 1, verses 1 through 11. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach, until the day when he was taken up to heaven, after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of forty days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which, he said, you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. 
Luke begins Acts with an overlap to the end of Luke. The gospel ends with Jesus appearing to the disciples, commissioning them as his witnesses, affirming the promise of the Holy Spirit, and ascending into heaven. Acts begins with Jesus appearing to his disciples, commissioning them as witnesses, affirming the promise of the Holy Spirit, and ascending into heaven. As the gospel ends, so Acts begins. This overlapping is a feature of Luke's literary style that we're going to see at every major section of Acts. In this case, the overlapping is between two books, and it's creating a connection between Luke and Acts. So rather than two blocks placed side by side where one clearly ends and the other one clearly begins, Luke and Acts are like two puzzle pieces that that click into place. They're linked together. Verses 1, 1 through 5 of Acts point us back to Luke. You know, we can read here that Jesus presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of things concerning the kingdom of God. And then if we want to know more about that, we can go back to the last chapter of Luke. And what we find is Jesus appearing to his disciples and teaching them and teaching them about himself. Luke 24 records Jesus walking with them and talking with them and eating with them. Jesus also says to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts arise in your heart? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Luke 24, 38 to 39. That's what Luke is saying here in Acts. Jesus gave the disciples proof of his bodily resurrection. This is the Christian hope. Jesus truly did rise from the dead, and he did so with a physical body. His resurrection is not an idea. It is not a metaphor. It is not a vision. It is not a dream. Jesus rose from the dead as a human being in the flesh, and he gave proofs of his resurrection to his disciples. And just as Jesus has risen from the dead. This is our hope also that we will rise from the dead um, with new bodies. And the disciples are an eyewitness to this truth. The historical resurrection of Jesus is critical to the witness. We also get in the gospel an idea of what Jesus talked about with his disciples during these appearances. Luke twenty four twenty seven, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, Jesus explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. And again, in 2444, all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. The apostolic message about Jesus is grounded both in the teaching that Jesus gave the apostles directly about himself, but also in the the understanding of the Old Testament scriptures that Jesus communicated to them. So on the day of Pentecost, that's coming very shortly, when Peter preaches about Jesus and he refers to the prophet Joel and to the Psalms of David, you know, how do we think Peter developed his understanding of those passages? Well, he could have put two and two together himself, but we read here that he got it from Jesus. Jesus was his Old Testament professor. Jesus taught the disciples how the Old Testament scriptures point to him, how Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. You know, Peter learned these things from Jesus. Jesus prepared his disciples to be his witnesses 
by helping them understand who he is according to Scripture. That's a necessary requirement for witness, that the witness understands and communicates not not his own truth, but the truth of Scripture. Now, in the New Covenant, word and spirit act hand in hand. So it's not going to be enough to, to witness simply by the word, but the expectation is, is a witness by word and spirit. Disciples are going to perform a ministry of word. They're also going to baptize in the Holy Spirit. They're going to witness to the word. They must witness in the power of the Holy Spirit. And for this reason, Jesus is not ready for the witness to begin, even though we see it at the end of the Gospel of Luke that he, he taught them all these things. And we know that they had, had been there, their eyewitnesses, so they have a lot they can say. Nevertheless, they must wait for the power of the Holy Spirit to come upon them. And the Holy Spirit will not be sent until Jesus first returns to the Father. So let's move on and look at the the commissioning. This is in Acts 1, 6 through 8. And Jesus makes very clear here, just as he did at the end of the Gospel of Luke, he's making clear here this connection between the Spirit and, and the witness. So 6 through 8 again. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, It's not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. First here we have the disciples asking a question. And we might wonder why they are still going on about Jesus reigning as king over Israel. You know, Lord, is, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom of Israel? Wasn't that one of the main misconceptions Jews had about Jesus through his whole ministry? Well, yes, it, it was a major misconception. People believed that Jesus came to make Israel great again and, and to reestablish the throne of David and to throw off Roman rule. That's what they wanted from Jesus. But we, we don't have to assume that the disciples are so dull or disconnected from the plan of Jesus that they're thinking that. That they're thinking that that was the whole reason that Jesus came. The early misconception also denied the validity of a crucified Messiah. But these disciples, they've accepted and believed that Jesus had to first come to die to provide forgiveness of all humankind. And they have believed that Jesus is more than a man. He's more than the son of David. He is also God. So some of their misunderstandings have been um, rectified. With that accomplished, that they believe that Jesus is God, they believe that he had to die, and that they believe he's risen again. So with all that accomplished, what happens next? The disciples are processing all that Jesus is saying, and they're trying to understand the plan from the cross and from the, the empty tomb onwards. You know, Jesus never denied that he would set up an eternal earthly kingdom promised to the son of, of David. He simply argued that there was more. You know, not only is he the son of David, he's also the son of God. Not only will he reign, he must also die. The disciples accept Jesus as God and king. They, they accept him as lion and lamb. They saw the lamb slain. Now they're wondering, when will the lion reign? And they're hoping the answer is now. 
Jesus, however, in a way that must seem very familiar to the disciples, you know, from the from what we've seen in all the Gospels, their time with him, Jesus declines to give them an answer to their question. He tells them it's not for them to know times or epochs fixed by God. And the use of epoch there might be a hint to them how long this might be before the earthly throne of David is established. They're not to know about the epochs of God. Also, in a way familiar to the disciples, Jesus takes their question, and he may not answer it, but he communicates to them something they really need to know. He gets more to the heart of the matter. They don't need to know the plan for the second coming of Jesus. They do need to know the answer to the question, what's next? Jesus has already told them more than once that their job now is to serve as witnesses to him in the world. The most famous uh, wording of the Great Commission is from Matthew 28, 18 to 20, which begins, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. That commission Jesus gave on a mountain in Galilee. Luke records for us here the last version of the commission spoken by Jesus, just outside of Jerusalem, right before he ascends into heaven. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. This is what is next. You will wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit has come on you, and then you witness. The restoration of Israel is a hope for the future. Don't worry about that. It will come when it comes. For now, do this. Be my witnesses in the power of the Holy Spirit. If you have your Bible out with you, you really should highlight or circle or, or underline Acts 1.8. This is as close as we come to a purpose statement for the book of Acts. It, it's, you should memorize it. The power of the Holy Spirit and witness to Jesus Christ. Both of those themes are going to run through the book. And both themes take on unique aspect in the New Covenant. Though the Holy Spirit does empower certain Old Covenant believers for special acts of service, the work of the Holy Spirit indwelling New Covenant believers enables a new kind of spiritual experience that was not available until after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. You know, Moses prophesied about this in Deuteronomy 36, that after exile, God would do a new work in the hearts of believers to enable them to love God. Something, they are missing something under Old Covenant, something they need, and, and Moses, looking ahead, promised, and, and you're going to get it, but it's going to come after the exile. In Jeremiah 31:33, Jeremiah connects that something new with the New Covenant. There's a new work that's going to be done. He, he calls it putting the law of God into the hearts of believers. Jesus connects this new work in his own teaching with the promised helper of John 14 to 16. And there Jesus gives us the metaphor of the true vine in chapter 15. I am the true vine, abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. Jesus is the branch. Spiritual vitality flows through him. 
we cannot bring about the spiritual fruit of the new covenant unless we abide in Christ through the indwelling of his Holy Spirit. We know that Jesus intends for us to understand the the metaphor of the vine, um, this spiritual relationship with the Holy Spirit, because both chapters that flank John 15 include a promise of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, after I go, I'm sending him to you. And in John 14, the emphasis is on the Holy Spirit empowering the believer to live a life of loving obedience to the Father. It's very Deuteronomy language. In John 16, the emphasis is on the Holy Spirit empowering the believer as a witness in the world. In both chapters, the disciples are taught that the Holy Spirit is not coming until Jesus ascends. This is a a new reality that's made available in the new covenant. And so here the apostles are supposed to wait for it. They are to sit. They're not waiting for the second coming of Jesus, which we don't know how long that's going to take. They're waiting for the coming of the Holy Spirit, which is very imminent. It's coming. And then they are to be witnesses. The act of witnessing is also not completely new to the new covenant. Israel was to be a kingdom of priests. That means they are to witness to the nations of God. Priests mediate relationship with God. They're supposed to try to help bring other people um, into relationship with Yahweh. There is, however, a new content to new covenant witnessing. And identifying that new content of the new covenant witness is going to be one of our tasks as we go through the book of Acts. So we, we don't want to assume too much about that message, the witness from the start. We want to pay close attention and see how did these early believers witness? What is the content? What were they driven to tell people? But it's safe to say that the witness is going to be about Jesus Christ. And this knowledge of Jesus Christ is something that the prophets from the Old Covenant long to know about more specifically to understand, but, but they, never, they never saw how it was exactly going to work out. It has now worked out. And that gives content to New Covenant witness. Eternal life now comes through faith in the name of Jesus. So the witness is going to be connected to Jesus. The witness is not about the Holy Spirit. We don't want to confuse that. Holy Spirit and witness go together, but they go together because the Holy Spirit empowers witness about Jesus Christ. Just as Jesus taught in John 16, 14, he shall glorify me, for he shall take of mine and disclose it to you. We're going to follow these two themes closely as we observe Acts, the empowering of the Holy Spirit, and what really is that? And the gospel witness to Jesus Christ. So what is the message they were sharing? And when I use that word gospel through our series, I'm, I'm not going to be referring to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I'm going to be referring to the basic Christian message that's being proclaimed by the witnesses recorded in Acts. We'll be paying attention to the definition of the gospel provided by Luke as as he records this movement from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and towards the remotest parts of the earth. That expansion out is the second half of our key verse, you know, Acts 1.8. So we, we get these two themes of, of spirit and witness, but we're getting more than that. You will be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. 
the progression of the gospel is going to be described as as a geographic expansion from the city they're in at this moment. They're in Jerusalem, and it's going to go into the surrounding countryside, you know, the nearby area of Judea and Samaria, and then it's going to go out to remote parts of the earth. Some, some versions say to the ends of the earth. The disciples are being commissioned to witness to the gospel everywhere. At the same time, this geographic expansion is also an ethnic expansion, moving from, from Jews of Jerusalem and Judea out to Samaria. The Samaritans are a cultural mix between Jew and Gentile. And then out to all the peoples of the earth. And we're going to follow both the geographic and ethnic expansion of the gospel through this book. So Jesus has commissioned his disciples. Now it's time for Jesus to go. Acts 1, 9 through 11. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on. And a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. The angels answer the question of timing for the disciples. When will the kingdom of Israel be restored? when Jesus comes back on the clouds of heaven, just as he's gone up. Do not stand around waiting for Jesus to come back. You will know when it is time for him to come, when you actually see him coming. Believers of every generation talk about the second coming of Jesus. We know there are going to be wars and there are going to be plagues. These are some of the signs. And the COVID-19 pandemic seems to be strengthening the conviction of many that the end is near. And the end could be near. I don't know. I'm reminded of Jesus' teaching to the disciples that the signs of the end will be like a woman in labor. Tribulations are going to occur in successive waves. And, And if it's like labor, the present pain, whatever pain you're in right now, whatever tribulations are going on, it's always going to seem like it must be the end. It can't get worse until the next pain comes, and then you know it can get worse. It's not over. So when I hear people talking about unrest in the Middle East, I think to myself, when has there not been unrest in the Middle East? And, and why would we think it's not going to keep happening? And when people talk about this leader or that coalition of governments or you know setting up a new order, I think, didn't every generation have their possible explanations of the Antichrist? And when someone refers to COVID-19, you know, I think, well, wasn't there a Spanish flu before that and people thought it was the end? And the Black Plague before that and people certainly thought it was the end? I mean, could Jesus come back during this generation? Certainly. Could his coming still be hundreds of years away? I don't know why not. You know, I'm sure that the Crusaders who captured Jerusalem in the 11th century, would have scoffed at the idea that Christ's return was still at least a thousand years in the future. But that's the metaphor of the woman in labor, that the, the, the pains are going to keep coming, and you don't know, is the baby coming right now, or, or, or we, do we still have hours to wait? So we, we are to eagerly look forward to the return of Christ, 
but we're not supposed to just stand around looking into the sky. Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? Do you want to know when Jesus is coming back? You'll see it. I promise you won't miss it. He's coming, and everybody's going to know it's him. Right now, the Holy Spirit is coming to empower you. Ready yourself for that, so that when the Spirit comes, you might engage in the work of the gospel to be my witnesses. This is your role. This is your mission, church. In the power of the Holy Spirit, witness to me in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the remotest parts of the earth so that people of all nations in every place might hear the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you would like the text of this lesson with some reflection questions, or if you'd like to see some overview charts that go along with our study of the book of Acts, then check out our resource page at observetheword.com. You can also find there our previous series on the book of Romans, the Pentateuch, and the Gospel of John. 